Our reading is found in the Song of Solomon, chapter 1. Song of Solomon, chapter 1. The Song of Solomon, chapter 1, and we'll commence reading at the opening verse of the chapter. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 1. The song of songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. Because of the savour of thy good ointments, thy name is as ointment poured forth. Therefore do the virgins love thee. Draw me, we will run after thee. The king hath brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will remember thy love more than wine. The upright love thee. I am black but comely, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, as the tents of Kedar, as the curtains of Solomon. Look not upon me, because I am black, because the sun hath looked upon me. My mother's children were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but mine own vineyard have I not kept. Tell me, O thou whom my soul loveth, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon. For why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions? If thou know not, O thou fairest among women, go thy way forth by the footsteps of the flock, and feed thy kids beside the shepherd's tents. I have compared thee, O my love, to a company of horses in Pharaoh's chariots. Thy cheeks are comely with rows of jewels, thy neck with chains of gold. We will make thee borders of gold with studs of silver. While the king sitteth at his table, my spikenard sendeth forth the smell thereof. A bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved unto me. He shall lie all night betwixt my breasts. My beloved is unto me as a cluster of camphire in the vineyards of Engedi. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes. Behold, thou art fair, my beloved, yea, pleasant, also our bed is green. The beams of our house are cedar, and our rafters of fir. We'll end our reading there at the end of that first chapter of the Song of Solomon. We trust God will add his blessing to the reading of his precious truth. For Christ's sake, amen. Our text is verse 1 of Song of Solomon, the very first verse uh, in the book, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Now, many people believe that this is really the title of the book, uh, enclosed in the Hebrew script. Uh, the Song of Solomon is the title we have, but that's just an addition, just telling us uh, the name <coughs> of the book. It's not inspired, uh, that title, the Song of Solomon, uh, but we uh, are certain that uh, verse 1 is inspired. It says, the song of songs, which is Solomon's. Now, Solomon wrote a thousand and five songs. So uh, he was prolific in his writing of different songs. He wrote 3,000 proverbs. Not uh, all of them are in the book of Proverbs, but he wrote in total, composed 3,000 proverbs and a thousand and five songs. How wonderful 
uh, was uh, his uh, prolific writing uh, of the different songs and the different proverbs. Uh, Charles Wesley wrote many hymns. We have a selection of his hymns in our hymn book. He wrote seven or eight hundred hymns. Fanny J. Crosby wrote a similar number of hymns. Charles Wesley would be sitting in the pulpit uh, about to preach and something would occur to him and he would write a hymn while he was sitting in the pulpit before he rose to preach. So he was a prolific hymn writer. We have beautiful hymns by Charles Wesley. We have beautiful hymns by Fanny J. Crosby. We also have here in this book a magnificent song, the Song of Solomon. And when it says the Song of Songs, it means it's the chief of the songs of Solomon. This is the very best. This is the cream of the songs of Solomon. Just as when we read in the book of Revelation that Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, it means he's the greatest king. He's the chief king amongst all the kings of the earth. And of course, that is absolutely true. Who is greater than Jesus Christ? He is the one who rules over the affairs of men. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the King of Kings. And Solomon's song here is the chief of his songs. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And we want to think of why that description is given. Why is this the greatest of Solomon's songs? Why is it here before us today for consideration? And the first reason I want to give is this. This is the greatest of the songs of Solomon because this is inspired. Solomon composed a thousand and four other songs. None of those was inspired. They may have been very good. Their subject matter may have been very good. But none of them was inspired. This song is written under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. We're told in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16 that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So we go by Scripture. We do not go by uninspired writings. Sweet they may be, profitable they may be, but there is no depth in comparison with the depth you find in the Word of God. Here are the thoughts of God given to Solomon that we might meditate upon them and drink them in and learn from them and feast our souls on them. This is inspired. There is no doubt about the place of this book in what we call the canon of Scripture. In the Old Testament, we have 39 inspired books. In the New Testament, 27 inspired books. Put them all together and there you have one book, one special book written under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Now, some people at one time doubted 
the place of this book in the Bible. You see, God's name is not found in it. It's one of two books in the Bible where God's name is not found. The other book being the book of Esther. The book of Esther shows us the providence of God. This book shows us something that is very beautiful and we'll be looking at that very shortly. The book of Esther doesn't have God's name. It doesn't need God's name because you see the providence of God in that book. And undoubtedly, this is part, <coughs> this Song of Solomon is part of Holy Scripture. We discover in Romans chapter 3 that the oracles of God were committed to the Jews. Paul asks the question, what advantage then hath the Jew? And what profit is there in circumcision? And he answers, much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. So the word of God was committed to the Jewish people. And the Jewish people recognized the Song of Solomon as an inspired book. And do remember, the Jews took particular care of the scriptures. Our Hebrew Old Testament was written under inspiration and the Jews took meticulous care of it. Let me just read you something concerning the care that was taken. Malcolm Watson, in his little booklet, The Lord Gave the Word, refers to the Masoretes who were families of Jewish scholars and textual critics. And they give us, uh, and this might be a little bit technical, the vowel points that help us in the study of the Old Testament. And uh, Malcolm Watts writes concerning the Masoretes, he said, copyists had to follow the Talmud's strict rules, which included the following. Only the skins of clean animals were to be used. Each skin must contain the same number of columns. There were to be no less than 48 and no more than 60 lines. Black ink was to be prepared according to a particular recipe. No word or letter was to be written from memory. If so much as a letter was omitted or wrongly inserted, or even if one letter touched another, the sheet had to be destroyed. Three mistakes on a page meant the whole manuscript was condemned, and revision of the copy had to take place within 30 days, for otherwise it had to be rejected. You can see there the reverence that the Jews had for the word of God, and they included the Song of Solomon in their scriptures, we can be absolutely sure this is an inspired book. That places it ahead of every other book. You might think of a book that is very precious to many people, The Pilgrim's Progress, composed by John Bunyan during the time when he was in Bedford Prison. Imprisoned not for any wrong he had done, but imprisoned for preaching the gospel. The Pilgrim's Progress is a most magnificent book. I've read it through a few times, but not as many times as C.H. Spurgeon did. Charles Haddon Spurgeon read through the Pilgrim's Progress over a hundred times. Over a hundred times. I reckon he must have read it through three times every year. You can download it on your Kindle if you've got a Kindle. And you can read the notes on it. 
uh, by uh, the editor of the Banner of Truth edition, George Offer, and you'll get great benefit from reading through the Pilgrim's Progress. Find out his journey from the city of destruction. See how he passed through many difficulties, how he came to the cross and there lost the burden of his back and how he cried out in triumph, Thus far did I come loaden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in till I came hither. What a place is this, he says. Must here be the beginning of my bliss. Must here the burden fall from off my back. Must here the strings that bound it to me crack. Blessed cross, blessed sepulchre. And Bunyan concludes that a beautiful verse by saying, Blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. The Pilgrim's Progress is a beautiful book. Takes you through the experiences of the Christian, uh, the pilgrim, uh, right through until he crosses the river of death and goes into the celestial city and the trumpets sound on the other side and Bunyan says, I wished myself among them. So that's a great book. The Holy War by Bunyan is magnificent. Grace abounding to the chief of sinners by Bunyan. And that's only one author. <coughs> There's many authors of tremendous books that you can read and enjoy and profit from. You can read them again and again. But they don't have the depth of the scriptures of truth. This is a special book that we can read, learn, digest thoroughly and profit from. The Word of God shows us who we are. The Word of God tells us where we are. The Word of God tells us why we are here. And the Word of God tells us how we can chart our course from our nature that is sinful to peace with God, the forgiveness of all our sins and a glorious future in heaven. So when you read the Song of Songs, you are reading of something that is written under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. And therefore, when Moses was told, Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the ground whereon thou standest is holy ground, you do something similar when you come to the Scriptures. You stop, you pray, you say to God, Show me, show me thy truth. Show me thy word. Let me learn from this book. Let me taste of its sweetness. And let me grow in grace as a result of my study of the book. Now Matthew Henry, the great commentator, has something to say to us about this book. He tells us that the, the key to it is Psalm 45. And uh, we were singing part of Psalm 45 I don't know if you've sung it before in your church. The key to it is Psalm 45. It speaks of a similar type of relationship between the bridegroom and the bride. Matthew Henry also says that there are simple things in the Song of Solomon that even a child may understand. Then he adds, there are also waters so deep that an elephant could swim in them. What he's really saying is there are depths in this book, great depths 
And when you read this book, you will find there are parts that puzzle you. And there are parts that puzzle the commentators. And there are parts, indeed uh, many different parts, on which the commentators are not agreed. <coughs> it's an inspired book. This chief book uh, of Solomon's, this, this chief song of Solomon's. And so he says, the song of songs, the chief song of Solomon's, this one is inspired and is beneficial to us when we study it, when we open our hearts to God and meditate upon the truth. But the second reason why this is the chief song of Solomon's is because it speaks of a very special relationship. The relationship that there is between the bridegroom and the bride. And of course we've got to look deeper. It's not just a love song with the bride and the groom as speaking in endearing terms of one another. It is a relationship that is much greater. It's the relationship between Christ, the heavenly bridegroom, and his bride, the church. Or we may take it down to the individual level. It speaks of the relationship between Christ, and if you're saved, your soul and my soul. I can say, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. It was the relationship that was enjoyed by the, uh, the saintly Samuel Rutherford. Uh, those words that we sang in that hymn, composed by uh, Anne Ross Cousin, they were drawn from the dying sayings of Samuel Rutherford and he was saying oh I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine and as you read through the song of Solomon you see what the church thinks of Christ and you see what Christ thinks of the church notice in verse uh, 15 of chapter 1 uh, we hear Christ speaking behold thou art fair my love behold Thou art fair. And he has something similar to say in chapter 4 and verse 7. There he says, Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. That's what Christ thinks of his church. He says, Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. It almost seems wrong. It almost seems wrong. Because as we look at ourselves, and as we look at our fellow believers, we would not uh, be able to say, Thou art all fair. There is no spot in thee. Uh, too often we are conscious of our own blemishes. We're conscious of our failures and our sins. And every day we have to confess our sins, even as believers before God. We don't believe in sinless perfection in this life. I know there are some uh, who teach that, that uh, you can be sinlessly perfect in this life. Uh, the trouble is, they do the same things that we do that are wrong. And uh, they say, but that's infirmity. That's not sin. Well, their infirmities are the very same. The very same as our sins. 
So I'm saying they're not infirmities, they're actually sins. As long as we're in this world, we have sins to confess. As long as we're in this life, there are many spots and many blemishes in God's people. So how can the bridegroom say, Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. There is no spot in thee. He sees us as we will be. He sees what we will be like when we are perfect in glory. He's going to present his people without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Perfectly pure, perfectly holy. That's how we will be. That's how Christ views us. Through the cleansing blood that he shed on Calvary's cross. He sees us as we will be. Behold, thou art fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. He sees us as beautiful. He sees us as perfect. And in this fourth chapter, he describes the church as a garden enclosed. Uh, cut off from the world. Separated. Protected. And he says, a garden enclosed is my sister. A sister, there's a close relationship. And we are, as it has been described in the scriptures, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. He came, he identified himself with us. He became flesh, as the Bible puts it, and dwelt among us. The Lord Jesus Christ came in humility into this world. And by partaking of human nature without sin, he identified himself with his people. And so we can say, my sister, we are of the same family as the Lord Jesus Christ when we are saved from our sins, when we call upon his name. But then he adds another term, my sister, my spouse. <coughs> You're my spouse. In human relationships today, your sister cannot be your spouse. But in this relationship, we are both sister and spouse to Christ. He cares for us. He takes us into union with himself. That's how he sees us. All fair. No spot in us. And if you read on to the end of chapter 4 of the Song of Solomon... You see the fragrance and you see the fruitfulness of the garden. To Christ, his people are fragrant. And to Christ, his people are fruitful. And he desires to be in sweet fellowship with us. He's looking forward, we can say, to that time when all of his chosen will have been gathered in and all will be perfect. The resurrection morning has taken place. We will have been raised with beautiful, perfect bodies to match the beauty that there is in our souls. And then the marriage supper of the Lamb will take place. A very special relationship described in this book. The relationship between Christ and his people. He loves his people and his people love him. Nothing is more beautiful than this 
relationship. I know that uh, some of the commentators discount that. Uh, Adam Clark, for example, and he's a very good commentator, feels that this does not describe the relationship between Christ and his church. However, uh, many, many commentators uh, believe what I've been describing to you is the true interpretation of the book, among them the very learned uh, Dr. John Gill. So you see here this beauty. Christ sees beauty in his church. He sees what the church will be like. Uh, when I think of those words of Christ, I'm reminded of some words that were spoken by a young man just before he got married. And he was standing on the steps of the church and the video camera was on him. And the person behind the camera said, was it love at first sight? Now his bride hadn't arrived. What a question to ask a bridegroom. Was it love at first sight? And his answer was very diplomatic. Because I gather it wasn't love at first sight. He said, I saw her potential. Well, what a statement. I saw her potential. Apply that to what Christ is saying. With Christ it was love. It was love in eternity past. There never was a time, and I say this without any hesitation, there never was a time when Christ did not love his people. Uh, we sang that, loved with everlasting love. Led by grace, that love to know. Spirit breathing from above, thou hast taught me it is so. We were loved. The people of God were loved in eternity past. There never was a time when Christ did not know his church, did not love his church. He saw. He saw our potential. Behold, thou art fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. You're shut off from the world. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. You're fragrant, you're fruitful, you're delightful in my eyes. Isn't that something to gladden you? Our brother spoke of uh, summer on the, uh, on the horizon. Well, there can be summer in your heart when you think of the love that Christ has for you and the appreciation that Christ has of you. This is the song of songs, the chiefest song. But there's another aspect to it. Because this book not only describes Christ's view of the church, uh, the love that he has for the church, it describes on the other side the feelings that the church has for Christ. And you can see that in chapter 5 in particular. Uh, it's summed up in verse 16 where it says, Yea, he is altogether lovely. Now there's a description given of the bridegroom uh, from uh, verse 11 onwards. Or sorry, verse 10 onwards. Uh, what is thy beloved more than another beloved? Verse 9 asks, O thou fairest among women, what is thy beloved more than another beloved that thou dost so charge us? And she says, My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among ten thousand. He's the greatest. He's the standard bearer who stands before his church. The chiefest. The leader of, we might call, the army. But also, 
the Savior of his people. It says, his head is as the most fine gold. Gold is the color of royalty. And it speaks of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Never let us underestimate the Son of God. He is God. God of gods. Lord of lords. As has been described, begotten, not created. The Lord Jesus Christ is God. Equally God with the Father. Equally God with the Holy Spirit. I've mentioned Charles Wesley. And there's a hymn that we sing at Christmas time. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. And in that hymn you have these words. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. And then Charles Wesley says the same thing in different words. He says veiled in flesh the Godhead see. You see God veiled in flesh. And then he says hail the incarnate deity. Incarnate means in flesh and deity is God. Hail the God in flesh. Jesus Christ. Even as a little babe he's God and man. You might say God and little child. But he's God. He never ceases to be God. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. Jesus our God with us. For that's what Emmanuel means. God with us. So look upon him. He's God manifest in the flesh. Isn't that a tremendous thing? That his head is as the most fine gold. He is a divine person. He is God as well as man. And there are many expressions there. Some of them are very difficult to understand. And you can see why Matthew Henry says there's waters for uh, an elephant to swim in. But I just want to pick out uh, one or two more. In verse 12 it says, His eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. Now just take the first part of that. His eyes are as the eyes of doves. John Gill quotes from the uh, Roman writer Pliny. And he says that when the dove goes to drink by the rivers of waters, that the dove uh, never uh, raises its neck. The, the dove gazes intently on the water, keeps its eyes fixed on the waters before it, and drinks a large draught from the rivers. And Gill applies that by saying that Christ never lifts his gaze from his people. His eyes are fixed on his people. He knows all about us. He sees us when we're in distress. He watches over us in times of danger. He sees us in times of joy. His eyes are never lifted from his people. Because he's God, he can see us. He can see when uh, there's need for him to step in. And he can step in at precisely the exact moment, exact moment that we need him. Sometimes we think he were forgotten. He doesn't know anything about us. There we are, we're in danger, we're in trouble, and we're forgotten. 
But the Lord never takes his eyes off his people. He's always aware of them. And uh, if I go down, it says his legs are as pillars of marble in verse 50. And that speaks of his strength and stability. The Lord is strong. He's mighty to deliver us. When the enemy attacks, the Lord is there. He, he allows things to happen to us, but for our good. He allows difficult things. He allows tragic things to happen to us. Uh, I love reading through C.H. Spurgeon's uh, Morning and Evening, a checkbook of the Bank of Faith. And you will see that Spurgeon mentions the trials of the believer and tells us that uh, the trials of the believer are an exercise of faith and a strengthening of the believer's faith. The Lord sees us, knows all about us, allows us to go through trials, allows us to fail at times, allows us to pass through danger, but he's always there. He's always watching. And uh, when the trial has done its work, he lifts us out as he did with Job. He allowed Job to lose so much, to suffer so much. And at the end, the Lord turned the captivity of Job. He turned it right round and he gave him twice as much as he had before. He sees what's good for us. He sees what's appropriate for us. We might kick against it. We might say, it's not fair. It's not right. But the Lord knows. The Lord knows. And we must submit to him and know that uh, he is wiser than we are. And then at verse 16, uh, when the description is coming to its climax, uh, Solomon says to us, his mouth is most sweet. It's most sweet because it speaks peace. It speaks love. It speaks assurance to us. And then he can say, yea, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved and this is my friend. So this song of songs not only is an inspired song, very special for that reason. Above all the literature of men that is uninspired, but also it is a song of songs because it speaks of a very special relationship. The relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. Tells of what the church thinks of Christ. Tells of what Christ thinks of the church. And may I say this to you. If you're not saved, if you're not a child of God, you're in a different relationship. You're not in a loving relationship with the Son of God. Your relationship is with the enemy of Christ. Your relationship is with the devil. Christ said to the Jews on one occasion, Ye are of your father the devil. Devil's your father. The devil's your guide. The devil's your companion. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. The Bible says he's like a roaring lion. Scares the life out of people. Walking about seeking whom he may devour, not whom he may bring to glory as Christ does, but whom he may destroy and destroy without remedy. So outside of Christ, you're in a different relationship. Your relationship is with the devil. 
with Christ as his child, you have a very special relationship. And it's spoken of here in the Song of Solomon. And there's, there's one more reason uh, that I will give to you. And I realise my time has flown away. One more reason. Because this book, in a sense, charts the progress of the child of God and assures the child of God, the bride of Christ, of a happy outcome. A happy outcome. A happy end to life. It charts the progress. Uh, there's, there's sweetness at the start. The bride says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. And so uh, that speaks of reconciliation. It speaks of friendship. It speaks of love. And you read through the book and uh, you see that special relationship that I've been speaking of. And uh, you see the, uh, the child of God uh, reaching the mountain peak at the end of chapter 4. Uh, the bride is saying, let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. Uh, let, let Christ enjoy the fruit of his labour. Let him enjoy what he's doing in my life, what he's doing in the church. And then in chapter 5, Christ says, I am coming to my garden. And he entertains royally. He says, eat abundantly, O friends. Uh, eat abundantly, O beloved. He, he, he's saying, let's have fellowship. And, and, and let's have an abundance of blessings and joy and peace and uh, the assurance of forgiveness and so on. But the next thing is dramatically different. Because it says, I sleep, but my heart waketh. It is the voice of my beloved uh, that uh, knocketh, uh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled, for my head is filled with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. And what does the bride say? I can't be bothered. Basically, she says, I've put off. She says, my coat, how shall I put it on? I've washed my feet, how shall I defile them? That, that's a picture of uh, the times of lethargy and coldness that creep into the the life of the believer, and into the life of the church. We reach the mountain peak where Christ is present. There's a desire for him. And he comes and he entertains royally with joy and love and peace and blessing upon blessing. And then the change. And don't we often experience it? Mountaintop, we're full of the, the blessings of God full of longing for God. And we, we think we'll never fail. And we get off our guard. And down we go with a bang. The beloved comes. says, open to me. And we say, oh no, I can't be bothered. I've put off my coat in essence. I'm resting here. And I've washed my feet. I'm in bed here. I, I'm at ease. That's the message. I'm at ease. And I don't want to be disturbed. My zeal has gone. My love is dimmed. And what happens? Well, if you read through chapter 5, she then discovers her folly. And she goes to open the door and her beloved is gone. And out she goes into the street and she's abused by the watchmen. They, they take her veil from her and she's beaten. 
And she, she cries out, if you've seen him, let me know. And are there not times of darkness in the life of a believer? Times of doubt, times of fear, times of lost assurance. And that causes great distress. And the bride labours long and hard until she finds her beloved. And then in chapter 6, uh, when fellowship is restored, she's able to say, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. There's the ups and downs of the journey described here. And I haven't time, obviously, to go into all those ups and downs. But there's progress towards a happy conclusion because in the chapter 8 it says that set me as a seal upon thine heart as a seal upon thine arm for love is strong as death jealousy is cruel as the grave the coals thereof are coals of fire which hath a most vehement flame and then she says many waters cannot quench love neither can the floods drown it you see when there is that relationship there might be failure. There might be the times when we get away from the Lord and we get cold. But the love that's there, placed by Christ, in our hearts when we're saved, it can't be drowned. It cannot, it cannot be eradicated from the soul. It cannot be. I'm reminded of an incident in the life of Solomon, and I'm, I'm watching my time. You may, may remember the two women who came... Uh, because one of the children uh, had died. Both women had children, and one of them lay on top of her child, accidentally, and smothered it. And then what she did was, she went over to her friend, and she stole her child, and took her child, and she placed the dead child beside the other sleeping woman. And in the morning, the woman awoke, and looked, and she said, Oh no, my child's dead. And then she studied more carefully and she thought, that's not my child. And she looked over and she said, you've stolen my child. You, you, you killed your child. And you've stolen my child. And the woman said, no, no, I did not. That's your child there, that dead child. You must have lain on it. No, she said, that's not my child. I know what my child looked like. And I know what your child looked like. That's not my child. And it all came before King Solomon. And Solomon listened to uh, the, uh, the arguing back and forth and the vehemence. And he said, this is what we'll do. Bring a sword and cut the child in two. Cut the living child in two. And give half to her and half to her. And one woman, the woman who was not the mother, she said, that's fair. Because she had no maternal feelings for that living child. She had no maternal feelings. She said, that's fair. You do that. The other woman said, no, don't, don't do that. Just give her the child. I'd rather see her with the child than see that child put to death. And Solomon said, it's her child. She has maternal feelings. And where there's love in the heart for Christ, we might feel, we might backslide. There might be a coldness creep in. But many waters cannot quench love. That love cannot be eradicated. There's always be a longing for Christ. Always. Many waters cannot quench love. And so the result will be that 
in the end, uh, our, our hearts will surge towards Christ. Our desires will surge upwards. The floods cannot drown that love. And there will be a happy ending. Because we'll be with Christ in glory. It says in verse 14, right the very last verse of the book. Make haste, my beloved. Make haste. Be thou like to a row or a young heart upon the mountains of spices. The row and the young heart. They have a great grip, you know, on the rocks and mountains. And they're very speedy animals. And the desire is, at the end of the book, come quickly, Lord. Just as at the end of Revelation, Christ says, Behold, I come quickly. And the bride, uh, or the church says, Even so come, Lord Jesus. There's a happy ending. Christ is coming. He's coming for his people. Coming to gather them. Many waters cannot quench love. Though we fail, Christ does not fail. He comes for his people. And John Bunyan concluded the pilgrim's progress. And uh, saw his pilgrim Christian uh, over uh, the river. And into the celestial city. As the, as the gates closed in the city. John Bunyan said, I wished myself among them. And on the 31st of August, 1688, around a time that's very special to Ulster people, on the 31st of August, 1688, John Bunyan entered heaven. He left behind the trials and the, the, the terrible persecution that he had suffered. And a few months short, of his 60th birthday, he entered heaven. This book uh, says, in essence, I wished myself among them at the end. Hurry, hurry, Lord. But it assures us of a happy outcome for the people of God to all their trials, their sorrows, and their failures. The song of songs, which is Solomon's. Read it with care. Read it with prayer. Read it with love. Taste of its sweetness. And if you're not saved, come to Christ.